rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have heard and received, and what you have learned and received, and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The world in which we live today is is changing to an incredibly unbelievable degree, even just from a couple of decades ago. The world today is almost unrecognizable from what it was two or three decades ago. But not only is our world different today, but it is changing at such a radical pace that the pace of change is it almost takes your breath away. If you think about how quickly our world is changing, it will make your head spin. But it is not often that we do that. Think, I mean. It is not often that we think. And I don't mean think about what's for lunch or think about the movie we watched last night or think about where we're going on vacation. I mean think. It's not often that we think deeply about significant and eternal things. One of the real tragedies of the world in which we live is that we have lost our ability to think deeply about significant things. We are living in a generation that has forgotten how to think. We have lost the skill and we have lost the discipline of thinking deeply about eternal significant matters. Our world has made our lives so fast-paced and so multitask-oriented that we literally don't have time to think about important things anymore. The preoccupations of this world and the pace of life in which we live, the demands that are made on our time, the constant accessibility that we have with one another. We all have cell phones and they stay plastered right here on our belt. We're, We're all reachable at all times. And most of our cell phones now, they've got computers on them with internet access, email access. And all of this has made our lives so jumbled up with unimportant, trivial things that we no longer have time to think about meaningful things. The world in which we live has conditioned us to be preoccupied with trivial matters to such a degree that we've come to believe that trivial things are actually important. And important things are actually trivial. You find this to be true? Does not our world tell us that all the things that are trivial and ultimately meaningless, that those are really the important things. And the important things, like what do you believe about religion? Or what do you believe about God? Or what do you believe about the afterlife? Or how do you believe that man came to be here? All those important matters, you know, it really doesn't matter what you think about those things. What really matters is which Hollywood movie star is pregnant out of wedlock. Or what really matters is is what the professional athlete tweeted on his Twitter account 
this weekend. Or what really matters is what sort of lewd pictures the latest politician tweeted of himself. That's what really matters today. So our world has reversed this. And they've told us that what's trivial is what's important, and what's important is just trivial. We have elevated the meaningless things of life to be the most important things, and we have relegated the important things of life into meaninglessness. And in the process of doing all that, we've become so preoccupied thinking about meaningless things that we no longer know how to think about meaningful things. This is what Paul is talking about this morning. Paul is talking about the peace of God, and he's going to say some things to the Philippians that, that quite frankly, he could have written directly to us today. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What Paul is saying to the Philippians, and quite frankly what he could have said directly to us this morning, is this. To have the peace of God, you must cultivate the skill of Christian Meditation. To have the peace of God, you must cultivate the skill of Christian meditation. Paul says, think about these things. Now, the word he uses for think there, it means more than just think. It means to ponder. It means to to weigh heavily, to consider. It means to meditate. The peace of God comes to those who have developed the skill of of Christian meditation, the skill of engaging our minds into the thoughts of God. Christian meditation. Now, when I say that word meditation, some of us get a little nervous with that word because that word is so closely connected with a different type of meditation that we find troubling. Because when we think of meditation today, oftentimes we get an image in our our minds of someone wearing a white turban, sitting cross-legged on a blanket, and sort of going into this semi-hypnotic state. That sort of meditation. It's closely connected with, with New Age religion, with Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, yoga. It's very closely connected with that. And what I want us to see is, is we should rightly be uncomfortable with that. We should rightly be very uncomfortable with the idea of pagan meditation being imported into our Christian belief. But one distinction that I want to make for us is this. Meditation, as it is practiced in yoga, as it is practiced in Hinduism, Buddhism, pagan meditation, not only is it different from what Paul is talking about, it is the complete opposite of what Paul is talking about. Pagan meditation is built on the the concept of emptying our minds. Emptying our minds of all thoughts. That's what Eastern religions teach. Buddhism teaches about the the state of nirvana. And one reaches that state of nirvana by a constant process of emptying the mind of all thoughts. And that is, is, quite frankly, that's that's a very spiritually dangerous thing to do. Because a mind that is empty of all thoughts is an open door for Satan to come right in. And so if you ever find yourself in a position where someone's telling you to empty your mind of all thoughts, then then you best leave because that is not a Christian thing that's going on there. That is not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about emptying our minds. He's talking about filling our minds. Specifically, filling our minds with the thoughts that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Thoughts of excellence. 
thoughts of purity, thoughts that are praiseworthy thoughts, Paul says, fill your mind with those thoughts. This is the purposeful, intentional filling of the mind with the thoughts of God and godly things. This is Christian meditation. Now, if there's one thing that I would really like to impress upon you this morning, it is this. It is how much the world in which you live works so very hard to prevent you from doing just that. The world in which you live works very hard at preventing you from ever thinking deeply about anything, most especially the things of God. This world fights tooth and nail against the idea of of you considering deeply the eternal matters of life, the significant things of life, the things that are really important, most especially the things of God. Our Our world works very hard against that. Think about your daily schedule. Think about the hectic pace of your life. Probably every minute of your day is consumed with some task. And if you were to really consider the things that take up your time, you would realize almost all those things are ultimately unimportant. And then if you do have any spare time in the day, then what the world does is it shoves a television in your face. And it tells you to turn your brain off and be entertained by this. Turn your brain off and amuse yourself. Turn your brain off and entertain yourself. We are addicted to entertainment. We are addicted to being amused. Here's what I mean. It's it's no longer enough that most people, when they get home, the television goes on and the television stays on through all waking hours of the day. No longer is that enough, but, but now many people have... Televisions in every room. It's not enough to have a television in the living room, but but now there's televisions in the kitchen so that when we're there, we can watch it. There's televisions in the bathroom so that when we're there, we can watch it. Many people today now have televisions on the back deck so that when you're enjoying nature, you can watch television. And not only is that not enough, but you can barely go to a restaurant anymore that does not have a television in every corner. To such a degree that there's not a seat in the place that does not have a television in view. And not only that, we go to have our oil changed and while we sit there for 15 minutes, there's a television. We go to the dentist and while we're having our teeth cleaned, there's a television. Last week I went to the bank. And while you're standing in line at the bank, there's a television for those 15 seconds that you're waiting for a teller. I'm not kidding. There are gas stations that are beginning to put televisions on the gas pumps. So that for those that 60 seconds or that 120 seconds that you're pumping gas, there's a television to watch. Now, what is all of that doing? All of that is preventing you from ever having time with your thoughts. All of that is preventing you from ever thinking about things that matter because you're so preoccupied thinking about things that don't matter. Thinking about the latest political scandal or thinking about which Hollywood movie star is having a nervous breakdown or thinking about every possible natural disaster that takes place on the planet. The world is shoving that into our face and is saying to us, turn your brain off and think about these things that really don't matter because you shouldn't be thinking about the things that do matter. And we're addicted to that. We're addicted to being amused. You know what that word means, amusement? The word amusement. You know what it means? 
Do you know what muse means? The word muse. Um, it's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but muse means to think deeply, to consider something, to ponder something. People used to use that word that say, I muse about this. Well, muse means to think deeply. Amuse means the opposite of that. It means that which prevents you from thinking. So amusement is, is those things that keep you from thinking, and that's what we're addicted to. Now, it sounds like the whole message is anti-television, doesn't it? And it's not. That's not what it's about. Television is just the easiest way for me to show you what's happening in the culture. Television is just the clearest way for me to show you this is what's happening, not just with television, with everything in our culture. Our culture works hard to consume all of your time and all of your thoughts and all of your energy on temporary meaningless things so that you never engage your mind in the weightier things of God. And this is the plan of the enemy. It is the enemy's plan that your mind stays unengaged. Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, he tells them that the things that are seen are temporary and passing away, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. Our problem is the world won't let us see the things that are unseen because it keeps shoving into our face the things that are seen and temporary and passing away. Now, the problem that Paul is writing about here is he's writing to the Philippians, and the Philippians obviously were spending too much time watching TV. The Philippians are obviously spending too much time on their iPhones. They're spending too much time on their Twitter account. They're spending way too much time surfing the Internet, right? I mean, that's silly, right? There, there was no television. There was none of those things in this culture. So why is Paul saying these things? Isn't it fascinating that he says these same things to a culture that has none of those things that we're talking about? So what does that say to us? That says to us that the problem is not the television. That's not the problem. The problem is not cell phones. The problem is not the Internet. That is not the problem. The problem is our heart. Because the human heart wants desperately to think about meaningless things. The human heart wants to avoid thinking about God. And so you must be purposeful. You must be intentional in your thought life. Because you know what? The thoughts of God are not going to just pop in your mind. The thoughts of God are not going to just happen. You have to make them happen. You have to intentionally think the thoughts of God. Look at what he says in verse 8 again. He says, think about these things. Paul didn't say, let yourself think about these things. The verb is not passive. He said, think about these things. You must tell your mind what your mind is going to dwell on. Now, here's the objection that some of us are probably having right now. You know what? I can't control what I think about. I can't control what pops into my mind. How am I supposed to control the thoughts that pop into my mind? I, I can't control that. And that is a lie that Satan loves for you to buy. He loves it when God's children buy into the lie that we cannot control our thoughts. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of God. We can control our thoughts. In the same way, Paul just told us in verses 6 and 7, he just told us we can control what we worry about. So in the same way that we can control what we worry about, he tells us in verse, verse 8 that we can also control what we think about. The only problem is it requires effort. It requires effort. It's not easily done. 
It begins by turning the television off, and it begins by turning the radio and the car off, and it begins by turning off all the things that amuse us, and, it, and then turning our minds and meditating our minds on the things of God. Turning, turning over in our minds the words of God. Turning over in our minds what God has said and what He has revealed to us. Turning over in our minds the promises of God, the character of God. Reflecting on that, contemplating all that, working out in our mind as, as best we can how this one God exists in three distinct persons and still one God. Working that out, contemplating on that. Now, is that just going to happen in your life? Or are you going to have to make it happen? You're going to have to make it happen, aren't you? Now, the question is why? What does it matter? I mean, why is it such a big deal? Why can't we just turn our brains off and turn the amusement on? Why is it so important that we control our thoughts? And why is it so important that we harness our thought life? What's the point? The point of Christian meditation is to allow you to hear the voice of God. The point of Christian meditation is to allow you to hear in your heart the word that God has already spoken into your head. You know, we talk often about the difference, the distance between our, our brains and our hearts. You know, we're 20 inches between our brains and our hearts. But isn't it true that so often the difference between our mind and our will, well, that could be a mile's. Or the distance between our mind and our desires. You know, our brain and our heart are, are less than two feet apart, but the distance between our mind and our desires, that can be a different world. And so our minds can know the truth of God, but our hearts don't will the truth of God. Or our minds can know the truth of God, but our desires are a different story. We can know that God is all-wise, all loving, we can know that He's working all things together for our good, that He's in control. We can know that we were created to worship Him. And we can know that we will only find our satisfaction in God and God alone. We can know all of that up here. But we don't know it here. And although we know that we should follow God and we should obey God and we should love God, sometimes what we want up here and what we want down here are two different things. Or our desire. Sometimes we know that we should desire God above all. And sometimes we know that sin destroys us and sin separates us from God. And we know that sin will never satisfy us. We know all of that up here and yet we still desire it here. So how do we get what's here down here? How do we get what we know to be what we live down here. And that's what Christian meditation does. That is the purpose of Christian meditation, to open the ears of our heart to hear what God has already said to our head. The purpose of Christian meditation is to take what God has given us in the Scriptures, which is why, by the way, Scripture intake is so important and Scripture memorization is so important, but Christian meditation takes what God has placed here and it moves it here. Paul has taught the Philippians a lot of things, right? We're in chapter 4 now, so he's taught them quite a bit. And what he's saying to them is this. You've got this stuff in your head. Now you need to move it into your heart. 
You need to move it into your life. And the way that you will do that is to think on these things. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul tells the, the, the Romans, he tells the Romans exactly how it is that they will experience true life transformation. How will the Romans be transformed? Paul tells them in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the world that wants to amuse you. Don't be conformed to the world that wants to entertain you, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's an interesting word, transformed. It's a powerful word, isn't it? Transformed. That sounds like true life change, doesn't it? It sounds like, it sounds like the change that takes place in a life when what one knows about God up here becomes what one lives for God down here. It sounds like the true life change that happens when the concepts of God that we have up here become the way we live. And Paul says that happens not by the renewing of your soul or the renewing of your spirit or the renewing of your body. He says it happens by the renewing of your mind. The disciplining of the mind to think the deep thoughts of Christ. Christian meditation. Some of you are being transformed. I can see it in your conversations. I can hear it in your words. Some of you are being transformed because your minds are thinking the thoughts of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. Christian meditation. Repeatedly, God's Word commands us to be in control of our will. And God's Word commands us to be in control of our desires. And we are to turn our desires towards God. How do we do that? How do you make yourself desire something? We do that by purposely directing our thoughts towards the things of God, purposely dwelling on the thoughts of God. And, and you cannot do that. You cannot do that with the television on. You cannot do that with the radio on. You only do that through good old-fashioned turning the television off, turning the radio in your car off, turning the computer off, opening your Bible, and meditating on God. Many of us find it easy to be hard-working with our hands and with our backs. But we find it more difficult to be hard-working with our minds. Jesus told us what was the greatest commandment of all. Of course, the greatest commandment is that we love God. But not only just love God, love God with all of our strength, all of our soul, all of our spirit, all of our heart, and all of our mind. How do we love God with our minds? We love God with our minds when our minds are His. And our minds are centered on Him. And our minds are being disciplined to think the thoughts of God. And they're being stretched around the concept of an infinite God. That's how we love God with our minds. And that's the first thing that Paul says. The first thing that he says is that you must discipline your minds, this idea of Christian meditation. The second thing that Paul says in the passage is this. Not only must we discipline our minds... But we must also discipline our habits as well. Because Paul now moves from, from the idea of Christian meditation to the idea of Christian imitation. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So what you have learned from me, what you have seen in me, practice these things or imitate me, Paul says. Now this is... Very familiar to us because this is one of the common themes 
that the Apostle Paul has in his writings. He's already told the Philippians, look up in chapter 3, verse 17. He's already told them there to, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So this theme of imitating Paul and imitating godly examples, godly teachers, this permeates Paul's writings. Paul tells the Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He tells the Galatians, brothers, I entreat you to become as I am. He tells the Thessalonians, become imitators of us and our Lord. So this is a common theme of Paul. It is the theme of imitating in our life the examples of godly teachers and godly leaders. A big part of following Christ in our life is the imitation of the examples that godly leaders give to us. Because, you you know, we, we learn through example. Right? That's how we learn. We learn through following example. But we also teach through example. We cannot teach others with a poor example, can we? We cannot teach others if the example of our life is ungodly. Someone can have all of the knowledge of the Bible. Someone can have all of the knowledge found in God's Word, and yet, if their life is not exampling Christ, if they are not walking with Christ if they are not living what the Scriptures have taught them, then I don't care how much they know about God's Word. If there is open, unconfessed sin in our life, then I don't care how much understanding we have of God's Word. And I don't care how well we can teach. If there's open, unconfessed sin in our life, we cannot teach God's people. It's like me saying to you, you know, the Scriptures say this. The the Scriptures teach us to put this in place in our life. Now, I haven't put it in place in mine, but I know if I did, it would work. So the Scriptures tell us to do this, so you do this. You put this in place in your life. That's worthless, isn't it? That is worthless. I can have all the knowledge of God's Word. I can prepare good sermons. I can have every degree that the seminary offers. I can deliver those sermons well. But if I am not providing a godly example, then I am disqualified from teaching God's people. It was Chuck Swindoll who said that a leader of God's people can only lead them into a relationship with God that is as close as their relationship with God. A leader cannot lead anyone into a closer relationship with God than he himself has. Because we lead by example, right? Now that's an incredibly humbling thing to ponder. It's incredibly humbling to think that I cannot lead you into a closer relationship with Christ than I myself have. The the closest that I can lead you to Christ is however close I am. That's that's a humbling thing to think about. So in, in, in a real way, your relationship with Christ is dependent upon mine. For those who want to lead God's people, this is something to consider. Your relationship with Christ in a real way is dependent upon mine. Because God's Word is clear, God's people are taught through the teaching of His Word and through the exampling of our life. We cannot teach people, we cannot teach God's people unless we can say, follow my example. This is also why you cannot call a television television preacher your pastor. You can't do it. A television preacher cannot be your pastor. Now, you, you cannot replace what takes place here at the local church. You cannot replace that with what takes place on television. I don't care how good the preacher is. You cannot replace what takes place here 
with, with Charles Stanley or, or Andy Stanley. You cannot replace what takes place in the local church with a television preacher. Why? Because he can preach, he can teach as well as can be taught, but he cannot show you by his example. You cannot watch his life and you cannot watch how he deals with temptation and how he deals with frustration and how he loves God's people. You cannot watch his life and learn from that. So the best thing that a television preacher can do is supplement what takes place in the local church because you cannot learn from their example. Paul says here, imitate me, follow me, practice these things, work on these things. This is intensely practical teaching because Paul says, Practice these things. Now, that's a word that we don't like. Practice. Because practice is a word that means hard work, doesn't it? Practice is something that requires us to be fully engaged. But that is the only way that we will grow in Christ. You will not grow in Christ outside of practicing the things that Paul has shown us. Let me give us an example. Let's say uh, that you want to become a piano player. And so you go and you buy the best book that's ever written on playing the piano. You read it cover to cover multiple times, actually. You read it through several times. In fact, you memorize large passages from this book and you quote those passages to your friends. Chapter 8 says this about how you do the pedals and and chapter 10 talks about this, about how you press the keys. And, And chapter 12 talks about this, how you place the music on the stand. And then you meditate on all these thoughts. You, you, you meditate on, on the white keys. And you meditate on the black keys. And you meditate on the pedals. And you meditate on how the strings are put together and the sound that comes out of a piano. You meditate deeply on all that. And then you get together with other piano players. In fact, you join a group of piano players. They get together every Sunday. And you hear a message about piano playing. You sing songs about playing a piano. You even break up into small groups and and you teach other people about what this book says about playing the piano. You show them what chapter 9 tells you about how it is you're to sit on the bench. And then you buy a bumper sticker and you put the bumper sticker on your car that says, I am a piano player. Now, are you a piano player? Not until you play it. That's not how you learn to play the piano, was it? You are not a piano player until you put it into practice over and over and over, playing the scales hundreds of times, thousands of times, practicing this piece of music and that piece of music over and over and over and over and over and over until you've got it. That is when you are a piano player. Now, is anybody having trouble seeing the comparison I'm making? This is why this message will always be an unpopular message because this message is all about hard work. Please understand, this, is, this message is not about how you know God. This message is not about how you come to God. Paul is not talking to unbelievers, trying to tell them how it is that they can be saved. He's talking to children of God, telling them how it is they now live. And he's telling them, you will not live for Christ outside of practice. Over and over, putting these things into place. 
He's talking about hard work. He's talking about the hard work of thinking well. And he's talking about the hard work of living well. He's talking about the discipline that is required for us to follow Christ. Because, you know, godly people are disciplined people. Godly people are disciplined people. That's why the Bible calls us disciples. Disciples, discipline. Godly people are disciplined people. Now take a look at the promise that Paul now gives in verse 9. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. Meditate on that for just one moment. The God of peace will be with you. Now that's significantly different than what Paul just said. What Paul just said in verse 7 was not that the God of peace will be with you. He said the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a significant difference between the peace of God and the God of peace, right? Which would you rather have, the peace of God or the God of peace? I'll take the God of peace. And so it's a significant difference between what Paul just said about prayer and what he's now saying about meditation and imitation. Paul said the result of prayer is the peace of God. But Paul connects together with this idea of Christian imitation and Christian Meditation, he connects together with that idea, the God of peace is with you. So why the difference? Why did he word it differently? I think he worded it differently because the only way we're going to obey the commands of verse 8 and verse 9 is if the God of peace is with us. The only way that we will be able to pull our minds from all the temporary things that the world wants to trap us in and and submerge our minds into the things of God. The only way we can do that, the only way that we can practice what the Apostle Paul has shown us, the only way that's going to happen is if the Spirit of the God of peace is dwelling within us and making it happen. The only way that happens is if the Father purposes that this happens. And the Son, He sends forth the Son And the Son makes it possible on the cross. And the Son sends forth the Spirit that enters into our lives and enters into our spirit and cries out, Abba, Father. That is the only way that this happens. The Father purposes it. The Son makes it possible. The Spirit makes it happen. As you do these things, the God of peace will be with you, Paul says. If you try to obey verses 8 and 9 without the God of peace and dwelling in your heart, then all you will experience is failure and frustration. And there will be no peace. But if the God of peace is with you, as Paul says He will be, then you will experience the peace of God. You will experience success, spiritual success, as you put into practice these things in your life, as you meditate on the deeper things of God. He will do these things. The Spirit of the Son will do these things. But here's the the point. He will not do them without your help. He will not do them without your effort. He will not do them without your engagement. This is not cruise control. This is not autopilot. The Spirit of the Son will make all these things happen in your life, but only to the degree that you are engaged, only to the degree that you are disciplined, because godly people are disciplined.